Radio Mano Papachango. Coming to you from Topanga once again, back from three weeks on the road in Amsterdam for a few nights, <clears throat> then Barcelona for a couple of weeks, down to um, a beautiful place called Vejer de la Frontera in Andalusia between Cadiz and Tarifa, uh, where Casilda and I went to visit uh, Deborah Berger who you've heard on this podcast. She's Tal Ruspoli's mother. Very wonderful woman. Got to go uh, hang out with her at her place. Um, I think I talked about that on a previous episode. Yeah, I did, definitely. If you're going down to that part of the world, stay at, uh, you can stay at her place, one of her places. She buys these beautiful old ruins and renovates them. Anyway, uh, then we were in New York for five days, I think. Um, attending the screening of the sort of New York premiere of Monogamish, Talrus Belize film. And uh, we did Q&As after those screenings. Really cool, really wonderful people came out, uh, had some great conversations, which uh, overflowed into the bar upstairs. And um, so that was great. Hello to those of you who, who came out to see it. Uh, really cool to meet you. And uh, now we're back in California. We just, we landed and got up the next morning and took Scarlett Jovanson and drove up to San Francisco for Stanley Krippner's 85th birthday party in Berkeley. That was crazy and beautiful. And then, you know, as usual, rather than just making it a quick drive up and back, Gotta get scenic about this shit. So we went up over Yosemite, uh, over the Sierras on, I think it's 120, and then down the other side and then took Route 395 down along the eastern edge of the Sierras. If you haven't made that drive and you're in this part of the world, wow, really worthwhile. I hadn't taken that route uh, until I came back from Burning Man. And uh, holy cow, that's a beautiful drive. Really nice. So if you're in California and you need to go north or south, check into Route 395. It's pretty cool. Um, yeah, we camped. Camped. We slept in the van uh, in various places. But uh, one of the things we did was we, uh, I just saw, I'd, I'd read years ago about bristlecone pines. They're apparently the oldest living thing on earth believed to be anyway there's a lot of stuff at the bottom of the ocean that nobody knows anything about um, but they live to be thousands of years old um, I think the oldest recorded one was like 5200 years old or something and uh, and there are dead ones that are lying there that are thousands of years they've been dead for thousands of years so the we went up, we we drove up uh, to check out the area where they live. It's a windswept, barren, I think about 10,000 feet altitude, 
very cold in the winter. So there are very few things that can live there. And uh, it's just interesting that, that sort of how longevity and deprivation seem to go together in some profound sense. Um, the only thing that's been found to reliably increase lifespan in mammals is calorie restriction. When you give rats or dogs or cats, or I don't remember all the other mammals they've tested this on, but a bunch of them, you give them about two thirds as much food as they want. They live significantly longer. I'm talking 20, 30% longer. Um, so maybe there's something to that. You can't always get what you want and you'll live longer if you don't. <laughs> maybe. Maybe you won't want to, but you will. Um, anyway, this episode is with Jeff Dyer, who's a wonderful novelist, um, British, dry sense of humor, as you'll hear. Um, wonderful guy. I met him in, uh, where, in the Salton Sea at that crazy, uh, crazy art festival that Tao and his uh, partners put together out there at the Bombay Beach Biennale, it's called. Anyway, uh, yeah, so Casilda and I went up into the Sierras and saw and hiked around and looked at the uh, bristlecone pines. 4,600 years old, some of them, that are up in that grove that we were in. Just incredible. Um, housekeeping. The book, Tangentially Reading. You've heard me um, talking about it in previous episodes. It's coming close to printing time. Uh, thank you for all of you who've pre-ordered copies. It's wonderful. It's great to be able to finance some of the printing costs through the pre-ordering. If you're if you know you're going to get one, uh, it really helps us out if you order it now, um, just because it uh, the cash flow issues become a lot easier to deal with. Um, we're going to print it in any case, and we'll be you know it'll be for sale. Um, but if it's something you think you're going to get, um, definitely you help us out by by ordering it now. It's basically your loaning us the money uh, for a couple of months or whatever it is until we deliver it to you. But we're definitely putting it together. In fact, it's being proofread right now. All 300 and some pages of it are being carefully proofread by Drew Fitzgerald and Brad Buzzard. Thank you guys for doing that. And, you know, they're just the latest in a long line of people who have reached out to participate in this. It's really a fucking cool thing it's a community project basically um everyone from the the, the people who chose which episodes which sections of those episodes um you know they've they've transcribed they sat there listening transcribing the episodes um editing proofreading as I've said, the, the art, the cover, the layout, the design, everything is being done by people who are involved in this podcast community. So I'm so proud of this and, um, and just sort of gobsmacked, dumbfounded uh, at the way that this has come together so, so beautifully, so wonderful. Um, anyway, anyone who has been involved in this Make sure that Matt knows, Matt's the, I guess, editor or the project 
chief or I don't know what he is. He's running the show. But make sure that he knows that you've been involved because we want to make sure to get you uh, on the acknowledgments page, we don't want to leave anyone out. So if you've done anything to assist in this book, make sure that Matt knows about it. You can write to him, Matt at misfit, misfit-inc.com. That's Matt at misfit-inc.com. Make sure that he knows that you were part of this because some people a year ago were doing things and then, you know, they got busy and faded out and we don't want to, um, you know, fail to acknowledge your help. So that is uh that's important by the way uh those of you who are wondering how stanley's doing um he is doing great uh i i don't know what his secret is but he's great he in fact is in china right now uh for three weeks leading workshops and giving uh, doing courses and dream interpretation and shamanism and world mythology and god knows what else um, three different cities in China and, uh, the dude just keeps rolling along. So thanks for asking. He's great. Uh, anyone who follows me on social media has seen some photos of Stanley recently and, and you can follow along with my travels down route 395 and other places. I'll be going to, uh, Utah soon to the Red Rock area to Moab and, um, some places out there. I think the needles we're, we're going to, uh, a friend of mine, guy who listens to the podcast, uh, Tom, Hey Tom, uh, offered to show us around because he knows the area quite well. So, uh, we're going to go out there and do some hiking. So if you follow me on Instagram, I'm that Chris Ryan or Twitter, same thing that Chris Ryan, uh, you can see some photos and whatever embarrassing shots from my childhood and other self-indulgent nonsense. If you don't do social media, congratulations, uh, stick to that. Do not get into that mess on my account. I implore you. Uh, I wanted to read an email a guy sent a few days ago. I don't know. It, it may come across as again, self-indulgent. I hope not. Um, because, what I really, what I love about this message is it's it's a really clear example of why it feels so good to be at the center of this podcast storm um, to get messages like this. Anyway, uh, hey Chris, I just wanted to offer you a story since you offer me so many on my commutes. Last Friday, I was listening to your discussion with Duncan. The first half I listened to in the afternoon commute the day before. This is important because I nearly didn't finish it. As much as your civilized to death narrative is convincing and aligns with many of my principles, quite frankly, I needed a break from the entire discussion. I get that, by the way. Um, this is me again. Um, I get that. Uh, you know, lamenting the state of the world gets fucking exhausting and depressing sometimes. And so I can understand how sometimes people are like, yeah, I don't get it. You know, I agree, but enough. And I feel the same way. <laughs> That's why I'm going to fucking Utah, man. Uh, you know, it's why I, I travel as much as I do. It, it's, and it's probably why it's taken me so long to wrap up this, this book because it's, um, yeah, it's depressing. The world is fucked. And that's depressing. What could be more depressing than that, really? Anyway, back to the email. 
then for whatever reason, be it reflexes, be it unconscious wishes percolating through, be it boredom with my music playlist, I turned on the rest of the episode. Something about your interaction with Duncan, the interpersonal dance you two engage in, the relaxed tone you had, the brotherly love that was obviously inflected in the tones of voice, the respectful pauses and affirmations of listening to one another with sympathy. This must have stuck out because it drew me back in. Duncan just finished singing to you. That unimpressive voice felt gorgeous in its sincerity. You tell each other you love one another. I'm driving on my daily commute. The show is ending with a professional rendering of the song Duncan Just Gifted. At the same moment, my car spills out onto the coast road. The sun is beaming. The ocean is answering with a beautiful glimmer. Its glow was decidedly different that morning. An elegiac celebration of interaction. I had to pull over for a moment because these moments are so rare. There was no swatting away of this open hand laid in front of me. A moment to reflect, much like that sun on the Pacific, on loving connections from the past. Moments later, as I'm turning into the city, I found it so lamentable being stuck in a car, commuting, listening to other people have the conversations I crave myself. The podcast format format may be a great proxy, but alas, ironically, it also highlighted my dissociation from the very things it pretends to offer. And then, remembering that beautiful moment only a minute earlier, and the connection you had with Duncan, I find myself calling old friends. Thanks. Uh, From Brian. That's what I love. It's not that you listen and you say, oh man, I wish I had a friend like Duncan or, you know, Chris's life is so interesting. I wish I traveled more. No, it's not about that. It's about listening to something happen. Listen to a conversation that inspires you to enact that in your own life. And it works both ways, honestly. A lot of the conversations that I have that you are listening in on wouldn't be happening if you weren't part of my life. If I didn't go to Jeff Dyer and say, hey, 50,000 people or 80,000, whatever it is, are listening to this, do you have time to hang out, talk for a couple hours? He says, yes. Now, if I just said, hey, Jeff, you want to hang out sometime? Well, he doesn't know me. Why would he make time for me? You know, now he does. Now we're friends. But that initial um, openness, that, that initial willingness to sit down and, and hang out with me is thanks to you guys. So it works both ways. I, and, and it makes me really fucking happy when, uh, I hear that something that's come through this podcast has enriched your life in some way. So thank you, Brian. And thank you everybody else for listening to this and, uh, contributing in whatever way you can and do. Um, I'm going to leave it at that. I'm going to play a song by a charter member of the Tangentially Speaking family, Carsey Blanton. Uh, You all know her. She's been on a couple episodes and you hear her reminding you that we're all going to die one day at the end of every episode. This song is from her last album called So Ferocious. And the song is The Animal I Am. Again, as always with Carsey, full of truth. 
All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm sitting in a beautiful loft apartment in Venice, California with Jeff Dyer, the author of many books, one of which I've read. Oh, okay. So, <laughs> but I know, I, I read uh, Out of Sheer Rage probably 15 years ago. I'm, I don't know how long ago it came out. Uh, yeah, uh, it, that sounds about right. No, yeah. So maybe it was fresh, fresh off the presses when I read it. I read it, I, I hadn't heard of you when I read it. I hadn't heard of you till, uh, well, I, I read about you somewhere. But after I read that book, because what drew, what drew me to the book was that D.H. Lawrence was one of my favorite authors oh, yeah. when I was young and passionate and, you know, very uh, consumed with uh, questions of lust and uh, that sort of thing. And uh, so I read, uh, you know, Lady Chatterley's Lover and uh, Sons and Daughters, Sons and Daughters, is uh, that sons one? Sons and Lovers. Sons and Lovers. Yeah. Uh, and The Rainbow. The Rainbow was actually my favorite book of his. And then I read his poetry and I read his collected essays and I, and I liked the, you know, I was traveling a lot then and I was very sort of interested in literature so I liked the fact that he moved around the world and he lives in New Mexico and Oaxaca I think as well. Yeah, he? he lived all over the place. Sardinia. Yeah. <clears throat> um, traveled in Sardinia from Sicily where he was living. Right. And of course wrote a great book about his travels in Sardinia, Sea in Sardinia. Right, right. Now, okay, two, two things I wanted to ask about that since you know a lot more about him <laughs> than I do. If I remember correctly, Out of Sheer Rage is a book about not writing the book you were supposed to be writing. Uh, yeah, but in the process it does become the book I was supposed to be writing. Oh. And the truth is that it was always going to be uh, a crazy book. So let me un unpack that a yeah, little please. bit. So as you correctly summarize it, there's a lot of stuff and it starts with me saying how I'm unable to write this uh, you know, critical study of, of D.H. Lawrence. Uh, but the truth is, actually, it's one of the easier books that I've written because I hit upon this tone quite early on, a tone that I liked. And it seemed to me there was absolutely no point writing another biography of Lawrence, say, because whatever the amount of time you have at your disposal, disposal there's, a, there, you know, there's an edition that caters for that. So mm -hmm. there's lots of one-volume uh, biographies of Lawrence. I think the one by Brenda Maddox is, is fantastic. And if you want more detail, there's the three-volume Cambridge uh, uh, biography of Lawrence. Uh, so, you know, there's just no... I've never seen any point, although some authors don't share this point of view, you know, basically writing a book which is already there in the mm. bookstores or in the library uh, wait, waiting for people. Uh, so there was scope for writing a kind of, uh, you know, a crazy kind of book about Lawrence. And increasingly, I mean, uh, I found that I, the, just conveying information, I find that incredibly boring. And even 15, 16 years ago when I was uh, writing that book, you know, my appetite for conveying the facts was, uh, was, was pretty minimal, yeah. you know. And yeah, so the fact that there were all these 
straight down the line biographies freed me from uh, from having to do that yeah and so really saying that I wanted to write a you know a respectable critical academic book about Lawrence that was only ever a, a sort of conceit really so you you didn't have a book proposal and a, a publisher waiting for a particular product well it was a it was at a one of I was going to say it was a, at a low ebb in my publishing history, but then I would need to be more specific because it's been a there's been a lot of low ebbs. You know, <laughs> I'm just still waiting for whatever the opposite of a, of a low ebb is. Um, and I did have some meetings with publishers, and I remember this very clearly with my then agent. We went to see one publisher in the morning who said, you know, I'm really interested in a biography of Lawrence. Is that what this will be? And I said, yeah, 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 it'll be that. And then in the afternoon, we went to see another publisher who said, oh, I'm more interested in you than Lawrence. Will it be more about you? And I said, yeah, 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 it will be. So I went with the second guy, really, because um, there was no way I could, I had no interest at really in meeting the, the, the sort of first meeting the conditions of, of the first one. Did you have a particular relationship with Lawrence's work? Um, yeah, I mean, I'd wanted to write a, a, a book about Lawrence for a long while, using Lawrence as um, a figure through which I could address two things that had been so important to me, Englishness, which I was you know, very interested in, and class, which of course, part of my understanding of class had, had come from Lawrence. And then even further back than then, you know, than, than that, I mean, Lawrence was one of the people, one of the writers who was so early on in, so instrumental in my becoming interested in, in, in literature. Because of the subject matter he tended toward or his well, style? Um, in, I mean, those, those things certainly, you know, but also I think one of the noticeable things about Lawrence is that Although E.M. Forster might have his admirers, God, I'm, I'm one of them. You know, E.M. Forster is a fantastic writer. The books are great. There was never really going to be a personality cult surrounding uh, uh, E.M. Forster the way there was ab about Lawrence. Yeah. So although you've asked me what it was about his books that were so important, more than the books, it was this figure of Lawrence with whom, you know, people fell in love. And it's it's not for nothing that anybody who actually met Lawrence for more than about five minutes ended up writing a memoir about their time with D.H. Lawrence, mm. however brief that time might have been. So it was this figure of Lawrence, uh, you know, the, I think it was, he was the, the first writer that I became uh, obsessed with as opposed to just being very, very interested in their books. Mm. And so, for example, on my bedroom wall, you know, I had photographs of Lawrence. He looked so, he looked so amazing, amazingly intense, you know. And um, yeah. there were all sorts of reasons, like you mentioned the way that he was uh, traveling the world. I mean, his life seemed a lot more, uh, uh, you know, a lot more exciting than Anthony Trollope's say. <laughs> you know, he had the kind of fascination yeah. for me that know, Kerouac might have had. Right. Yeah, yeah. Swashbuckling. Yeah, that's or that's, seemed to be. Yeah, and you know, there's the the adventure of travel, this kind of weird com combination of intense vitality that everyone commented on, the combination of that and incredible sickness. Well see that's I was gonna get to that. Uh, 
As, I, as I've aged, I've come to the realization that so many of the figures, literary figures in particular, that are famous for one thing, if you get to know something about their private lives, it's sort of the opposite of that, mm. you know? I think with Lawrence, so often, a single page of his writing, maybe even a single paragraph, maybe even a single sentence, will contain those those uh, those contradictions yeah. uh, or antinomies or whatever you want to see them, yeah. as I call them, and that's one of the things that makes his life so exciting. So one of the things you can do, it's very easy. It's a bit like Nietzsche. Um, you know, yeah, he was, came to mind. Right. Nietzsche, Hemingway, uh, uh, Conrad. Yeah, you know, you can go through, and just as you can con construct exactly the version of Nietzsche that you want, so you can assemble various quotations from Lawrence to make him seem a sort of raving proto-fascist, a misogynist, or alternatively, a hippie, social I'm, democrat. I'm thinking hyper-masculine. Well, I mean, yes and no, but, um, you know, I mean, uh, I don't know if you have this expression in America of somebody being a mummy's boy. Yeah. Nobody was more of a mummy's boy than than, than Lawrence. But that didn't come across in the writing. The writing oh. is all about how manly and the thrusting and the strong arms and it's all it's very Hemingway-esque. And well, I, I've come to I don't know if you'll agree with this, but and, and I have a very cursory knowledge of his life, but he seems to me to be a closeted homosexual. Well, I mean, I'm gonna take issue with every bit of, uh, of that okay. um, because, I mean, there is this, I mean, God, it's funny how deeply we have to go into this. I mean, uh, very, very close to his mother, uh, abnormally close to his mother. And I think it was Norman Mailer who said something like, no writer was ever, no male writer has ever been more at home in the sort of tides of women's moods and, uh, mm. and, and, and sort of changing feelings. Mm. And then he says something like, or more disposed to strangling them. Um, <laughs> and that's, that's all true. You know, he said he was born hating his father. Uh. Uh, and of course, the, the father was, this, uh, was a minor. Right. And one of the pillars, if you like, of Lawrence's thought is this idea of the power of the instinctual life, yeah. which he saw incarnated by his, his father and his minors, because there they are underground in the sort of, in the, in the earth's unconscious, as mm. it were, as opposed to in this more sort of uh, uh, rational world of the, uh, 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 of, the, of the intellect. But, you know, I mean, and his father's sort of a small but very, very powerful figure. Abusive. Muscular. Abusive, yes, as well. But, you know, there's, and then, I mean, there's this lovely bit where uh, I think Lawrence's sister says about their dad, you know, he knew the names of the flowers and the birds and that. Um, you know, rather nice, sensitive image. Mm. Lawrence, of course, an incredibly sickly child, very sort of feminine little boy mm. in, in many ways. And anyway, the key thing is there are all the, there's this sort of mass of, of, of contradictions there. Yeah. Uh, and I think in some ways, you know, we can see them embodied in, the, in, his, in his marriage. You know, so it's like, you know, it's, it's, uh, yeah. like he's, you know, he's keen to have sex, like, you know, like any, any young man. And of course, there's all these, there's sort of, he persuades her, you know, he's, he's courting various women. But then he, um, he meets Frida 
who's in receipt of all these advanced European ideas of, uh, of sort of sexual, some sort of sex, psychosexual liberation, all this kind of stuff. And of course he runs off with her, marries her, and uh, she's a big sort of hulking, kind of thick set, you know, much, much older than him. And there's my, one of my favorite things of, is of just this, they, they would always be fighting and apparently there's this scene where skinny, feeble Lawrence is sort of strangling her and he's saying, I'm the master! And of course, <laughs> he so obviously wasn't. Yeah. Uh, and yeah. it's not for nothing that he ended up with uh, a very, very strong, yeah. independent uh, woman uh, like that in receipt of all the latest avant-garde crazy ideas from, from Europe. Right. as opposed to some passive, uh, 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 meek, repressed English right. soul. So to sum all of this up, I mean, uh, there's a, the, the, yes, you, you can't read the wrestling passage in Women in Love without thinking, oh God, this sounds, this sounds pretty gay here, but, I always, but I, it's nearly always any kind of, that kind of analysis, I feel always sells Lawrence short so that, for example, in Sons and Lovers, uh, as soon as it came out, people very quickly saw this as, a, you know, they detected the Oedipal thing in it. Mm -hmm. And as he said, you know, this thing of psychoanalysis is all very well, but what it does is it just extracts from the complexities of artistic truth a rather uh, a less than adequate uh, sort of clinical uh, diagnosis. Yeah. I don't, I don't see it that way in the sense that I love his writing and and my having come to the the notion that he that the writing was fueled by a frustrated sexuality to me doesn't diminish the writing it just explain you know it's like talking about the the kind of engine that's in a Ferrari mm -hmm. the Ferrari is still a beautiful piece of engineering and the fact that it's got a 12-cylinder, you know, and so many horsepower, and it's, to me, they're two separate issues. Mm -hmm. They come together beautifully in his case, you know, or Joseph Conrad's depression, you know, suicidal mm -hmm. depression doesn't at all diminish my experience of his writing. You don't uh, feel like killing yourself instead of finishing reading Nostromo? <laughs> <laughs> Possibly. I don't think I got through Nostromo. Uh, but the stuff I read, the, the, I really, I mean, I read... Uh, um, Heart of Darkness once, all the way through while tripping on acid with a friend of mine, with gloves on. That, that was, we were, this is my college literature professor and we had, um, it was winter in upstate New York, we were going to go hiking and we had taken some LSD and we were like all bundled up ready to leave his apartment to go on our hike. And um, Heart of Darkness was sitting on his kitchen table, and one of us, as we often did, just said, "Oh, well, I'd have to read you this one passage. It's yeah. just amazing." And you know, we read it, and then the other one was like, "Oh, there's one here." And we ended up, you know, getting high as hell and sitting there for two hours and read through the whole the whole story. Oh, what a waste! <laughs> <laughs> I, I enjoyed it a lot. Yeah. I loved it. I think but, all books should be read that way. <laughs> Tripping with your professor. <laughs> Those were the days. <laughs> Those were but, the um, days. To, to go, I mean, you know, this, even this idea of sexual frustration, though. I mean, mm -hmm. so, you know, lots of Lady Chatterley's Lover now is, is kind of embarrassing to, to read and 
you know, more generally, I think the bits of Lawrence that have fared least well with the passage of time are the bits about the loins of darkness and the, the hard gem-like gem flame, all that uh, kind of stuff. There, there's a passage where he's describing a man pushing a woman on a swing. Hmm. And you can read the entire paragraph thinking he's talking about intercourse. Yeah. Mm-hmm. There's all this thrusting and grabbing, yes, thrusting. gripping, and, you know, and she's flushed and, uh, you know, and flustered by the power of his mm. thrusting, and it's just unbelievable. You know, yeah. and as a psychologist, I mean, I'm, I'm my degree with, you know, whatever, if I have to declare a profession, I mm. guess psychologist is close to one of them, but... Uh, you know, that's just so obvious, or Hemingway and all yeah. his machismo, and then you read about how tight he was about his small penis in his letters to Fitzgerald, and it's like, well, of course he was. That's why he was obsessed with bullfighting and, you know, conquering and killing and, you yes, know. Yeah. Um, but, it, but again, it doesn't diminish the writing to me any more than, you know, Picasso, you know, had problems with his prostate, and that's, you know, like, that's why you yeah, switch yeah. color. I don't care. But with, with something like Lady Chatterley's Lover, I mean, it seems to me that whatever we now think of uh, the way that the sex is written about, yeah. uh, you know, it's a pretty, uh, it is, whatever else you might want to say, a frank expression of sexual uh, bliss as, as yeah. it was, as it was uh, th- then available. And um, of historical importance. Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that, that's right. Um, and, you know, yeah, so, uh, I mean, I, I think a lot of what's going on in, in Lawrence is that he's wanting, and this is what, um, you know, people objected to, he's sort of celebrating the way that he has for a while uh, this kind of incredible sense of, a, 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 of sexual fulfillment with his, you know, with his big German wife. Yeah. Um, yeah. Who suspected that he was... Uh, not straight. Well, uh, but the, the key thing that I want to repeat, as, uh, uh, you know, that I'll, I'll keep repeating until the cows come home, is that he's a complex character, yeah. uh, uh, Lawrence. Yeah. So I, th- I really feel that that would be, that's really just not the, the idea that he's, uh, he, that the key to it is that his repressed homosexuality rather sells him short, because I think there are all sorts of other things uh, going going on there as yeah. well. You know, yeah. there's his vexed relationship with, oh God, his vexed relationship with so so many uh, different, you know, different things. And, and also, uh, you know, to take your side of, of this, even the word homosexuality and or heterosexuality, these terms that we think we understand and we know what they mean are so culturally determined. Mm-hmm. Um, I often talk about, um, there's a tribe in Papua New Guinea that believes that the essence of masculinity is contained in semen. And so the young boys who are most intent upon becoming the fiercest warriors ingest as much semen as they possibly can because that'll make them stronger. Right. Yeah. And so we, you know, we look at this from our cultural perch and we say, well, that's homosexual behavior. And they but they have no concept of that yeah, to them. That's yeah. conventional male behavior. 
I mean, so who knows? I mean, I'm applying my, you know, my paradigm to his experience, which is obviously yeah. irrelevant and inaccurate. Although in the sort of, you know, rather um, uh, in that sort of English upper class milieu of the Bloomsbury set, exactly. there were yeah. plenty of people who were, you know, um, uh, you know, they w maybe wouldn't have called themselves homosexuals, but yeah, they were, you know, they, they were identifiably, you know, uh, yeah, well, they, they, would, uh, they would have identified themselves in a way that we would now say was, you know, gay. In, until, I don't remember the exact date, but the term homosexual as describing a person wasn't even uh, used in the English language until pretty late in the 19th century, I believe. Right. Yeah, but there were homosexual behaviors, mm -hmm. but a homosexual was yeah. not thought yes, of yeah. as a concept. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Although you have to think that uh, Oscar Wilde probably would have qualified. Mm -hmm. Again, he's, and, and, and there's a, this is, I don't know if you know who Joe Rogan is. No, familiar okay. with him? He's, um, he has a podcast. He's a very, one of the most popular podcasts in the world. Um, he's a very macho guy. He's a fighter and uh, mixed martial arts guy. He does the commentary on Fox when these they have these mixed martial arts fights. He's, you know, black belt and right. huge yeah. muscles and all this kind of stuff. And I was on his show a while ago and we were talking about homosexuality and I I made the point which to his he's not homophobic at all, but he's in a very sort of straight men's world, you know. Um, and I made the point that if what we value as manly in our culture is um, sort of a fierce insistence on being who you are, then the most manly examples, the, the, the examples of the most manly behavior that I can think of are gay men who come out of the <laughs> closet, right? Because they're risking everything to be who they are and to hell with the consequences, yeah. which we see as this very sort of macho thing. But the people are, it's really easy to be straight. It's hard to come out and be gay and yeah, insist yeah. on you know being true to your identity. Well, Lawrence had so many great things to say about being uh, a man, and um, and one of the reasons for that is that you know he was conscious that by certain sort of indices he wasn't much of a man because mm. you know he's so sick so sickly small, this kind yeah. of thing. On the other hand, as I, I talk about this in the book, he was you know uh, a great DIYer. There's a lovely bit when. Uh, um, uh, what's his name, Ravagli, uh, Frida's lover, who then became her uh, husband after Lawrence died. He's reminiscing about uh, uh, Lawrence and Frida together when he knew them. He said, oh, Lawrence was always busy working. And you think he's going to say, ah, always writing. He says, mainly doing housework. Mm. <laughs> so, and the housework he's doing isn't just the manly stuff of, you know, uh, DIY, putting up shelves. He's also cooking, making jam, all this kind of stuff. Mm. And there's a rather wonderful bit where uh, Lawrence says, you know, it's so simple. He says, there's more to being a man than manliness. Mm. And then, uh, you know, I think it's in the preface to that history book, he, he writes something like, you know, what it is to be a man, it's uh, to, you know, uh, to, to keep your word. And he just comes out with these great, you know, ideas of what it is to be a man that you really couldn't quibble with. Um, and 
the key thing to, um, to, to, to an understanding of Lawrence, I think, is his amazing sensitivity to everything. I mean, yeah. my God, you look at those poems and just his responsiveness to the to, to the natural world yeah. and his ability to articulate on a second by second basis his um, shifting feelings about what he's experiencing is what makes him great still to us today rather than that more hieratic priestly uh, tendency to to preach to us about the yeah. uh, the various uh, 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 you know sicknesses for which he of course believed as did so many writers at the time that he was uniquely uh, well placed to provide a cure mm. do you know his poem snake yes of course I yeah. love that poem yeah that's that's a uh, I think that's a that's a sort of classic uh, Lawrence poem in that you know there he is, you know, in his white pajamas, goes down to the water trough. He's in Florence, isn't he? And then, and just that, that sort of eternal readiness for something extraordinary uh, to happen. Perhaps, though, in terms of the poems, I like the ones that are even less essayistic than that. Mm -hmm. Increasingly, I, I like the poems by him, which are hardly more than sort of. Um, let's if we just. If we can just say, yeah, that's quite a sort of essayistic-like poem in terms of its conclusion. I like the ones that are now just that, that seem to be just like sort of just knocked off postcards, where like you're just getting the, yeah, just the sort of flash of stuff he's noticing. So that, I mean, in that late poem, I can't remember much of it, but he's waiting uh, for um, he's waiting for Frida, I guess, to get off a ferry, and he he sees her coming towards. Her him and he just says there she is the woman in the world who looks for me mm. and you realize oh, what a wonderful description of one's you know wife or life partner or whatever yeah. or even more you know to stick with the animals you know when he talks about seeing the, the kangaroo you know with its drooping Victorian shoulders wonderful <laughs> especially when we bear in yeah. mind that at that point according to Brenda Maddox he'd only ever seen a kangaroo in the zoo at Sydney, not out in the sort of vast Australian dawns that he also talks about in, the, yeah. in that poem. Yeah, I, I uh, the one and only time I ever drank tequila was in Alaska. I was up there working on a, in a salmon cannery or waiting for the fish to come in. And I was camping in this on this bluff, and there are all these people there, and I was hanging out with these guys that I'd met up there you know, young, adventurous types. And uh, we were bored because the salmon were delayed uh, coming in. And there were five or six of us, and we decided to get drunk. Just like, you know, generally in my life when I got drunk, it was by accident. <laughs> it wasn't, but this was like, tonight, let's get drunk. That's, yeah. That was the purpose of the evening. And we went and bought two bottles of tequila. And I was, I was 19 or 20. And, very sort of inexperienced with alcohol. I, I was more into marijuana and hallucinogenic psychedelics, and um, but alcohol didn't interest me much. And they had the lemon and salt thing, oh, yeah. you know, so you don't really taste it. And I probably had 15 shots in an hour or something, and I, I just didn't notice what. Mm. And I decided I needed to read 
snake to these guys, <laughs> and I had my collected D.H. Lawrence oh, right. poetry yeah. with me in my backpack. Yeah. yeah, so I pulled it out and I read. It was from this. It wasn't collected. It was selected. It was a thin, thin volume, and I read this poem to them. And I remember the last lines: "I have something to expiate a yeah. pettiness, a pettiness," yeah. and uh, I collapsed <laughs> into the dirt, and then. Uh, from a distance, I could hear the rest of the, the party going on, you know, and it went, uh, they were all laughing at how funny it was that, you know, Chris had to read a poem and then, <laughs> and then pass out. And then, uh, and then the evening progressed into the sort of morose, emotional, I love you guys, and, you know, and then we didn't know each other two days earlier, but, um, and then this was in 1983, so just before AIDS, mm. uh, and they decided to become blood brothers to, to commemorate this evening. Yeah. And I'm listening, you know, on my face in the dirt, and I'm just thinking, that's not a good idea, guys. <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm the guy probably like lying in my own vomit here, but... <laughs> Even I know that's not a good idea. Yeah. And then I hear, oh, that's really deep. Oh, that's too much. No, it'll be okay. And, oh. and, and, they're, and they're going about this. And then I hear someone say, well, Chris would want to be a blood brother. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, no, please, no. And, and I feel these hands touching me. And all I could do was pull my hands under my chest, right. you know. And if they wanted to cut my back or whatever they could have, <laughs> I couldn't have done anything about it. But they luckily, they left me alone. Anyway, so the, the point of this story is I still have that book. Oh, right. And I was looking at it, pulled it down from the shelf recently. I was moving books around, and there it was. And like, oh, that's the, that's the volume I took uh, to Alaska. And yeah. I, I sort of thumbed through it, and there's a page stuck together. And I pulled it open, and there's a poem there called I Once Loved a Woman. And written over the poem in blood is yeah. <laughs> what a great bit of uh, uh, marginalia, Mike, marginalia. Especially appropriate since in blood. Know, Lawrence famously said, "You know, my great religion or my great belief is is in the blood rather than the brain." Well, there you go, man. It was the perfect tribute. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Without the H. Right. <laughs> Yay. <laughs> Yeah. So were you interested in poetry growing up? Were you a literary child? Oh, no. I mean, mine is the classic kind of uh, story. Grew up in a house with no, no books at all. My, oh, really? My, you know, a working class family, which is another reason why Lawrence meant connection, yeah. so, so much to me. And then, yeah, in a, in a, you know, I, I, I say this only to emphasize just how archetypal it is, you know. I'm at, uh, I'm at school and just f uh, uh, courtesy of a great teacher, get really into reading and fall in love with literature and you know, all that kind of Do you remember the kind of first stuff. literature that really touched you as magical? Oh, I can remember the first uh, Shakespeare we did at mm. school, which was Richard III. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, there was nothing about the way it was taught to make it relevant, you know, to make it, um, it wasn't like, uh, okay, we're now going to dress them up in, you know, so that Richard III is Trump or something like that. Some Which equivalent happened of recently. That. Yeah, it, yeah. Was, it was just the, the language. But th there is one interesting thing to say about this. So I, I really liked it. And by then, and the nice thing that my teacher did was that in 
addition to all of this stuff we were studying for exams, you know. Uh, so how old were you at this point? Oh, this would have been, I think, you know, let's say 15, something like, yeah. like that. We're doing Richard III for O-level. So in addition to those um, uh, assigned texts, he also got me into reading, you know, current contemporary uh, stuff. So I think pretty soon after this, uh, Richard III and so forth, and I was also reading the people you'd expect for somebody of my age. I got into, you know, Kerouac, Joseph Heller, and uh, Catcher in the Rye, that kind of mm. stuff. Catch-22. Catch-22, yeah. And, um, Vonnegut? You get into Vonnegut? No, I never did, too actually. Too American? Too Just jokey? Maybe too jokey, even though, yeah. of course, I now like jokey books more than anything. Slaughterhouse-Five is amazing. Maybe, but it didn't do didn't uh, did do you try? You read any, I, I certainly read it, but uh. it didn't. He just, I think that might be the only Vonnegut book I've, I've ever read. Um, but in with Richard III, yeah, so th I'm saying that there we are, this kind of, you know, really traditional working class family. But, you know, but, um, so my mum worked at the school canteen as a dinner lady, you know, preparing and serving the, the awful slop we would eat at the, that I was actually at that school. Yeah. But there was a lady there who also worked with her. Uh, I can't remember her name now. But she was a great lover of Shakespeare. So this, in that way of, you know, the, the sort of, the way that, you know, cultural life is rarely as, certainly back then, it wasn't as sort of stratified as it, anyway, so she had a record. Uh, a recording of uh, an edited ver 40 minute, you know, Richard III edited down to, to 40 minutes. Um, and it was, uh, the part of Richard was performed by one of those hammer horror uh, actors, one of those in English actors like Peter Cushing or, or, or whoever it was. And since one of the ways, one of the things you had to do when you're doing O-level was learn a lot of the lines, then I listened to this, and you know now I, I've still got the the whole of those speeches are in my in uh, in my head, mm. but exactly with the intonation of this uh, of this recording, mm. and in the uh, and as edited down for for that record. Mm. Um, so um, yeah, that's what was that what that's what that's how that all. So that was started. the magic of language that touched yeah, you in that. Yeah, yeah. absolutely, and um, really, and then you know, f once you get into you know, once you get into that thing of the pleasure of reading, then uh, of course your your life is uh, you know well on the the way to being uh, tra transformed. Toward being a writer, or, or oh, just no. toward being a literate person? Yeah, to yeah. be, to be. Well, I mean, it's being transformed. I think in several ways. One, in terms of your understanding of the the world, mm. so that socially my world was very, very limited. And if we advance a few years mm. forward, you know, by the time I'm, let's say, seventeen, something like that. Well, socially, it's still exclusively limited to drinking beer in pubs. But, you know, by then I've probably read, you know, I think I'd probably read Middlemarch by then. So what that means is that my understanding of nuance, gesture, psychology, all of this kind of stuff was really quite far in advance of my circumstantial life. It right. was certainly becoming far more advanced than that of my parents. Right. Um, so that, that, that's, there's that kind of world that you're, you're you know, 
yeah, you're understanding a world of which you have at that moment relatively little experience. Mm. And I always refer to Middlemarch in, in that way because it's so, you know, it, it's so, so instrumental. But also, just practically, you know, once you start passing exams, then your options in life are sort of improving, of course, with every, uh, uh, with every exam you pass. And it was a long while, really, before I realized that this thing of passing exams was actually this thing called an education. And it certainly was a long while uh, beyond that before I realized that there was a, a social dimension to, to all of this. Mm. But the key thing to say, lest it sound like there's any kind of pulling myself up by my own bootstraps or some sort of uh, determination to get on. My role in this was entirely passive. Uh, it was the, you know, the educational escalator was there. It had been ferrying uh, uh, boys mainly of my, of my class to, uh, you know, grammar schools and universities since, uh, well, you know, especially since the, 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 uh, the post-war settlement after, after the Second World War. So I just went, you know, went passively went along with that. And it was only in retrospect, after this educational escalator had dumped me at Oxford, mm. that I started to realize, to, to have some sort of understanding of the, of the, the process that I'd, uh, that, I, the, 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 the that I'd been through. Of, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, uh, I had a professor in university who was W.H. Auden's last lover. Uh, oh, right. Andrew Harvey was his name. Oh, yeah. Do you know him? He was. A, I know the name. He was the apparently at the time he was the youngest person to ever be a full don at Oxford. At All Souls, Andrew all Harvey. All Souls, yeah. Is this? Oh, I, yeah. I actually know him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah he God, was. I did an interview with him on stage at the ICA in the late 1980s. Ah, right. Well, I knew him in the a, early eight, the mid 80s. He became a sort of full-on sort of like new a guru. age guru. Yeah, that's, <laughs> exactly. that's the same guy. Yeah. yeah, he wrote a book, A Journey to Ladakh, about is India. Excellent, with a, a yeah. line in it that I've never forgotten yeah. when he's. Um, He's on his way on some sort of, you know, pilgrimage or whatever kind, and one of the sort of wise people he speaks to, he tells them, uh, uh, you know, he's in a state of despair. And he says, ah, despair, the last refuge of the ego. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyway, sorry. I'm yeah, no, no, it's, it's, I, I briefly thought about going to Oxford uh, for graduate school, and Andrew was offering to help me out. Oh. and. He was very good friends with the professor with the gloves and all that. The three uh -huh. of us used oh, to yeah. hang out a lot. And uh -huh. he came, uh, he taught spring terms at this little college I went to in upstate New York. Oh, really? What was the name of that college? Hobart College. Right, uh, yeah. Near Geneva, New York, in the Finger Lakes, near Ithaca, Cornell, yeah. and all that. Um, yeah, so he came in spring term and would just, you know, I, I think it was just a money thing, come in, make some quick money, and then go on with his... Travels. <laughs> yeah, it was before, I think he was working on Journey to Ladakh uh, when I met him. That came out maybe my last year there or something, I don't remember. Um, but he was great. He was a very, very interesting guy, you know, obviously uh, 
fascinating for this guy to show up in upstate New York, you know, just back from, I think Indira Gandhi was his godmother, and yeah. William Harvey, who discovered the circulation of the blood, was one of his ancestors. Mm-hmm. And he was a very, very upper class, flamboyantly British yes. presence. Mm-hmm. He yes. always had like a purple <laughs> scarf flung That's over, right. and yeah. he's very sort of uh, Oscar Wilde-ish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah, interesting character. And uh, yeah, so I, I was sort of on track to go to graduate school, p- perhaps at Oxford somewhere else. And then I took that trip to Alaska where the, um, <laughs> the tequila happened, right. which is why I had D.H. Lawrence with me. I and, see. yeah. You know, I, I, it'd be interesting to remember which books I had in my backpack, but probably half the weight I was carrying was books. Yeah. I was a pedantic little <laughs> fuck, I tell you. <laughs> so you studied literature at Oxford? Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. You know, just straight from uh, yeah, there was never any sort of doubt about what I would what I would study. And of course, it was all all this uh, wonderful education was entirely free back then. Yeah. You know, not free, not just in terms of the tuition, but a free grant. So. Right. Uh, you know, back that now students are rather short of money, but back then the first thing I did was, uh, you know, get to Oxford and bought myself a nice stereo. You know, mm. it was great times to be a to be a student back yeah. then in the the late seventies. And did you specialize on a particular area, or was it a oh no? I mean, what I would say is that um, I mean several things. Uh, first, after the incredible commitment and enthusiasm of this teacher at school, the teaching at Oxford, if one can dignify it with that word, was an incredible disappointment. Really? You know, it was made so clear uh, early on that, you know, the obligation to teach was an irritating distraction mm-hmm. uh, and infringement on, the, on, on their time when they'd rather be doing their own research, you know, that right. notoriously pointless thing. <laughs> on the other hand, although the, you know, so you know how the, the setup is at Oxford, you know, mm-hmm. nobody goes to lectures, you see your tutor once a week for an hour and they tell you what to read and of course that's it's like that mainly just so it's minimum effort for them but it really does work in that this after three years of that you know apart from going to evening classes in the hope of some sort of romantic uh, hookup Mm. you never really need to go on any kind of course again because you can just find out everything for yourself and yeah. my whole writing life since then has been in a sense a continuation of the weekly essay that mm. I used to have to produce at Oxford so it's just been yeah this thing of continuing education and the other thing you're asking was there anything I specialized in I think the great virtue of the Oxford course was precisely what makes it what made it seem even then deeply unfashionable. We just ploughed through everybody from, uh, um, you know, everything from Beowulf to, I think we stopped at Samuel Beckett. And there might be a, there were a few omissions, you know, I haven't read Dryden and I figure I can go to my grave, you know, without that really uh, bugging me too much. Uh, I didn't read Byron, I wish I had read Byron because mm. I'm not going to do that now. Right. You know, there were a few omissions, but we pretty well, uh, pretty well covered the old. Primarily old. English literature, not oh, yeah. American. Or, no, yeah. no, 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 um, no American at all, except T. S. Eliot. Uh, may as well he, have been yeah, British. She right. was such a kiss ass. <laughs> um, and then you no, know, no American at all. See that? I'll tell you, you guys. I read so much British English literature. 
And you guys don't even read like Mark Twain, Herman Didn't Melville. No, but I, oh, uh, I, I had I'd read Moby Dick at school mm. independently. And, but, uh, and you mentioned Beckett. He was Irish, right? Yeah, but so, you know, so English men. I think you maybe. You know, maybe there was an option to do Henry James or something yeah, like that. Again, kiss ass. Yeah. Mo um, could have been British. But, uh, you know, then straight after university, then I was able to, you know, then of course, you know, I read French, Russians, all this kind of stuff. And, you know, uh, I guess I'd been reading a lot of, a lot, I mean, I, yeah, I guess what happened is that we did, at school, you see, we did, uh, this was, this would have been the mid, mid to late sort of 76 or something, we did The Great Gatsby for mm. A-level. Yeah. Uh, and then, um, you know, as sort of background reading to that, I also read Tender as the Night, which mm. remains one of my two favorite books. Mm. And the other kind of, you know, more recent British writers, I'm really conscious that I, I never really read the people that other people at Oxford had read, like Evelyn War, who never really meant anything to me. I mm -hmm. didn't read uh, Graham Greene. I was sort of independently reading Americans who, even if they were the same age as their British equivalents, often seemed more contemporary. Mm, yeah, you a little know. more vital and unmoored yeah. from tradition. Yeah, so Kerouac, you know, yeah. really was Kerouac, you know, Kerouac really meant my, my other favorite book of all time remains on the road I think really so yeah I was reading Kerouac as opposed to I don't another know, mama's boy by the way yeah very yeah ended up living with his mother yeah. you know so when he was old so yeah I was reading that stuff rather than um, I don't know Anthony Powell or uh, Evelyn War you know? yeah so I, I don't 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 feel too hard done by I was getting the the I was a uh, uh, rece receptive to the American hegemonic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they, they had their heyday there uh, yeah. for a while, like mid to late 20th century. Did, did you get into the, the sort of, um, what did they call them, the minimalists, like Raymond Carver, Tobias Wolff? Oh, that, sort that was much later, though, in the, oh, yeah, in the yeah, 80s. The 80s. Um, uh, uh, yeah, when, in the, you know, when Carver was so huge. And in fact, I went to, um, uh, went to a reading heat gave in uh, in London got my copy of is it fires signed uh, by him a sort of fires yeah, yeah I think yeah. so so I got that and in the, at the same time was reading uh, it's funny they were all grouped together that lot because mm. Granta did an issue of you know rather silly thing now dirty realism mm. and there was Carver who was the you know the main one Tobias Wolf uh, who remains I think a truly great great writer yeah I, and I uh, agree. and Richard Ford were the were right. the main ones right. uh, there um, uh, but you know uh, to uh, Tobias Wolf never seemed sort of uh, how to put it reducible to minimalism he actually mm. always seemed like uh, you know a quite quite traditional writer in, mm. in a way in that the you know the things that we value in Tobias Wolf are pretty much the same things that we've you know that you value in you know in any 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 writing I think he's absolutely amazing I agree uh, he's one of my favorite living writers yeah uh, did you read his Vietnam memoir? Oh, sure, in yeah. Pharaoh's Army yeah I read that and uh, do you know actually I've interviewed him at this place the ICA and he was mm. 
so nice because I was only mm -hmm. sort of young in, in my late in my sort of mid 20s or something and I was really hopeless at this kind of thing then and he was just so so incredibly courteous and nice yeah. about this kind of rather inept idiot interviewing <laughs> uh, uh, <laughs> interviewing him. he came to Hobart when I was there um, and he had written his first, he had published his first collection of short stories in the Garden of the North American Martyrs. Yeah, which had a different title in Britain, actually. Uh, I think they called it Hunters in the Snow. Ah, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that was one of the stories. One of the stories, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I had read, I guess it was assigned, you know, one of the professors, I had assigned some stories from that. And there was a story, I think it's in that collection, that remains... I went through a period where I read nothing but short stories for mm. probably three or four years. I, I sort of, you talked about how Lawrence was the only author you were obsessed by as opposed yeah. to focused interest. I, I tended to go through things where I would only read Russian literature for two years <laughs> and then it was only Lawrence for a while and, and you know, until I just got so saturated with it then I'd move on to something else. But short stories, Flannery O'Connor, Eudora Welty, and, um, yeah, Tobias Wolf and Carver, and I, I just love the form of short stories, the mm. the power, the, the you know the little grenade-like power of the concentration. Anyway, there's a story by Wolf called "The Liar." Does that ring a bell? It's about a boy who's huh. on a bus. It sort of weirdly, it sort of doesn't narrow things down much in the Tobias Wolf it's opus, true. does it? Well, because a lot, a, there's a lot of autobiographical yeah. material, and he was a little. Storyteller, yeah, 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 and his dad was, and there's all and his, sorts his of older stuff brother through, yeah, 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 and his mother. To, to, did you see the film uh, This Boy's Life? Do you know I I didn't deliberately because I loved the book so much. It's a good movie. Mm. It really. I mean, I love the book as well, and it's one of the few movies that didn't feel insulting. I mean, it's got Robert De Niro, yeah, Ellen Barkin, yeah. and uh, the young uh, what's his name. Uh, um, Leonardo DiCaprio oh, plays really? the boy. Oh. Yeah, no, it's a stellar cast. And they did a really good job with it. Um, but anyway, the story is, is just this, it's sort of the, you know, it's one of these pieces of literature that just radiates out into the whole mm. art form, I think. It, it's this kid on a bus, and he's maybe 12 or something, and his parents are divorced, and he's, you know, going through all the trauma of the kid at that age. And... He, um, there's all this stuff about how he lies at school and he's telling lies. And at first it's just, he lies about, you know, taking money from his mother's wallet or whatever it is, just stupid little things. But then, and his mother, as is often the case in his stories, his mother isn't really angry. She's just hurt and confused and compassionate but frustrated. And she's dealing with all her own problems with the, you know, her relationships as in this boy's life, there's a lot of that. And, um, and then he tells at school, he says that his mother has terminal cancer. And he gets all this sympathy from everyone. And then they, something happens where they call the house and ask if they can help her with anything. And it comes to light what he's done. And, and there's this really heartbreaking scene where she's sitting with him just saying, life is going to destroy us anyway <laughs> why are you lying about it you know and there's just this mutual incomprehension but anyway so those are all sort of flashbacks and he's on the bus and 
the bus has to stop because there's a terrible rainstorm. And so they pull over and the rain is like sheets on the, on the windows. And, and the woman next to him asks him a question, where, where are you from, kid? And he says, well, I'm from whatever. But where are your parents? Well, they're missionaries. And they're from Tibet. And, and he makes up this whole story about his parents are missionaries in Tibet. And he was born there and, and blah, blah, blah. And then, so, and then the people around, sort of people in the front turn around and someone offers him a piece of chicken. And, and he's got this audience now. And he's telling the story and everybody's fascinated by it. And finally, someone says, well, do you speak Tibetan? And he says, of course. I grew, I grew up there. And he said, I'll say something in Tibetan. And then the last line of the story is, and then I sang to them in what was surely an ancient and holy tongue. <laughs> I'd forgotten that story. It's so beautiful. Yeah. It, it, and it's literature, right? Yeah, it's like yeah. James said, they used to call me a liar. Now they call me an author. It's like... <laughs> At what point did you decide to write professionally? Oh, never did. Just drifted into <laughs> it, you know. Still thinking about it? Yeah, you know, yeah. just, it was, um, uh, I, I wrote, it was the 1980s, you know, when there were more, the newspapers were getting bigger and bigger with more mm. and more supplements, wrote some book reviews, longer book reviews, then a few things that weren't book reviews, and sort of, so I very gradually became a, an author, and uh, very, very gradually uh, weaned myself off that great thing that we had in England called the dole, where, you know, the mm. government would give you a certain amount of money. Uh, and that was, yes, yeah, so I gradually became a, 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 a professional writer, I guess. Do you enjoy writing? Uh, oh, like everyone says, you know, I, I certainly get a great feel of satisfaction after I've done it. And sometimes while I'm doing it, but increasingly I find it's just so difficult to get into it. Yeah. And there's all sorts of reasons for, for that. Do you have but, rituals? Are you one of those uh, people every morning? I think morning? the rituals are unfortunately mainly rituals of distraction and displacement now. Yeah. Uh, which are getting in the way of uh, the efficient use of, uh, of, uh, of my time. Do you, you write know? every day? No, not really. And it, it so depends on, you know, where I am in the process. You know, once I've, once I've made some progress, then I do kind of, I can get into it without too much, <clears throat> too much trouble. And you write mainly fiction? No, mainly the opposite. Mm, <laughs> or, really? Uh, yeah, I mean, I've written, published four novels, but uh, I think there's very little, uh, fi I think I've got very little fiction mm. left, left in me. And if I, what I do have left in me, I can see now, it's all, all the same, my fiction. It's always about the same thing. Mm. And Which I, is what? Oh, it's, it's, just, it's really striking. It's always about a group of friends. They go to a party. One of the characters sees uh, a woman in the party. They get talking. That's pretty much what it always is. And um, why do you think that is? Uh, it's just one of the fascinations of fiction, I think, is that it really sort of reveals to you, you know, some of your things. So I think those, what I'm really struck by is that three of the novels, The Color of Memory, Jeff in Venice, Death in Varanasi, 
uh, oh, and there's one in between Paris trance. They're really, they're really very, 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 very similar. Hmm. Um, it's funny you say that as if it's surprising to you in retrospect. It, yeah. So you um, didn't recognize that as you were writing them? No, partly because I was writing such a bunch of other books as well. And I guess that's the, the thing that people always say that mine is a, you know, un, really highly unusually wide-ranging body of work. And yeah. it really is, you know, and it's in, it covers a lot of different subjects in a lot of different forms and styles. It really does. But then scattered between that, that wide-ranging thing, there are these novels which are always, which are just so, so similar and they're always ad addressed, yeah, they're always addressing the same things, the same situations. You mentioned, I, I don't know if this is, if this is accurate or not, but you mentioned this situation, I, I haven't read your novels, but the group of friends, they go to a party, someone sees a woman, they start chatting. <laughs> to me that sounds like a very social, sort of comfortable social interaction. And you mentioned that your own childhood was, there was, you weren't comfortable in social interactions and you were oh, very I, much... I, I was comfortable within the social act interactions that I had, which was pub, pub going. Oh, yeah. okay. But then, you know, my world did expand from there. Right, you know. okay. Goodness, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. So it's not a display, it's not like you were... You know, because I think myself, if I were to write fiction, or even, even, you know, to some extent, if I were to do the sort of disservice to myself that I did to Lawrence earlier, looking for psychodynamic explanations for things, you know, I'm aware of the fact that adolescent sexual frustration has probably fueled some of my interests as an adult. <laughs> yeah, you know? uh, well, you know, it's, yeah, it's a per per perennial uh, thing, that, isn't it? But uh, yeah, so I mean, you know, these sort of things that are described in the books, you know, there's quite often sort of, you know, fictionalized stuff of, you know, incidents or whatever that I've, ex you know, been to, a, been to a lot of parties. In Varanasi. <laughs> you know, so. Um, what did you think? Yeah. Have you been to India a lot? Yeah, I'd mm. been to, in I'd wanted to go to India for a long while for several reasons. Um, partly because of the music. Um, and, mm. you know, we're talking about him. I now realize that the first time I ever heard the uh, South Indian violinist uh, Subramaniam play was in Andrew Harvey's apartment in, uh, in Paris. Ah. And we listened to this, you know, just fantastic recording of a live performance. And he said, you know, if you're interested in this kind of music, you really need to go to the Madras Music Festival, which my wife and I, Duly did many years uh, later, um, and yeah. Anyway, I'd wanted to go to India for ages, and uh, but I was always frightened of getting ill. Mm -hmm. And then we went to, uh, I think we went to, and then yeah, oh god, and then there was the whole sort of rave thing of uh, you know trance music, which was Goa. coming out of Goa. So yeah. my wife and I went to Goa, and far from getting ill, you know, I actually put on a bit of weight eating all that curry and <laughs> ghee, you know, had a little pot belly, yeah. so that was good. And then we went back to India numerous times for various reasons, mm. and then. Um, you know, we went to, we ended up going to, 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 to Varanasi. And, you know, uh, you know, you really don't put on weight in Varanasi. 
<laughs> the yeah. Varanasi diet plan. You know, yeah, you know, I mean, there's India, yeah, and then there's Varanasi, which is like an incredible concentration and um, uh, sort of uh, radical in, in intensification of everything you've yeah. you've you've experienced. So it's both. It's it's greater. It's more beautiful. It's more horrible. It's more everything. It's just more. Yeah. yeah. So it's so. It was that was. Uh, but I'd been to an, the key thing to say is I'd been to India quite a lot mm. before we uh, before we got to uh, to to. Yeah, uh, to you wouldn't Varanasi. want to fly directly into Varanasi, probably. Well, people people that that can be something. Yeah. First you know. time I went to India, eighty seven, eighty eight, something like that. Uh, I had a one-way ticket from New York to oh. New Delhi. I quit my job in New York and flew directly to India. Um, but I remember meeting this guy who was traveling around, and um, he told me the story how he and his friend, he was English, and he and his friend had finished at Oxford or Cambridge, and they'd had this plan. As soon as we finish, we're going to go to India and spend a year traveling around. and. They saved their money and whatever, and they flew. They landed in Calcutta, uh, flew directly into Calcutta, got a taxi, went to the hotel, and his friend was very quiet in the taxi and uh, got to the hotel, and this guy took a shower, and his friend just was sort of lying on the bed, and he's like, yeah, are you going to take a shower? Like, no, no, I'm okay. Well, I'm going to go out there and let's go get some dinner. Like, yeah, I think I'm just going to hang out. Like. All right, so I'll see you later. So he goes down, he gets some food, he comes back, his friend's asleep. Next morning, wakes up, and his friend's sitting there all dressed. And his friend said, I'm leaving. He said, where are you going? I'm going back to England. Oh, God. He went to the airport and flew home. That was it. <laughs> Couldn't take any more. That ride from the, from the airport to the hotel, that was it. I'm yeah, done. Yeah. I've seen it. Uh-huh. It's funny because, you know, it, uh, I mean, what I was feel about India is that it's, I mean, I get so frustrated in, in England, you know, and it mm. can just drive me nuts. And I've never really found India that frustrating because it's whatever else you want to say about it, it's, it's never boring. <laughs> it's never boring. <laughs> There's always no. uh, just the kind of, quite often just the ridiculousness of it is... Uh, well, I can see, like, even we started talking about India, your body language changed. Oh, did or it? Maybe it's just because we've been sitting here I think a while we've been and sitting you're relaxing. Here so long. Yeah, I've now got this LBJ like kind of, uh, <laughs> just, you know, yeah. No, I, I know. LBJ, <laughs> which makes me think of when he invited someone in to talk to him while he was on the on toilet. The toilet. <laughs> yeah, well, we're not, that's we're not, not going that happen. far. No, that's not what no. Jeff means. But we were, I tell you this because we were watching. We've watched four episodes so far of the amazing new Ken Burns Vietnam oh, series. And there's lots of photographs, of course, of mm-hmm. LBJ having these meetings with people. And he's a big guy, and it's just, he's always, you know, sprawled out. Yeah. But unlike me, he's not sort of long and skinny. He's a big guy. He's a big and just this all consumed, But he's always just occupying this huge amount of furniture. Great sense of humor. Yeah. <laughs> I can, you know, I, I don't know that much about his politics. I know he was a ball buster and, you know, mm. but I can forgive almost anything if it comes with a good sense of humor. Well, me too. I am absolutely, I remember my, we watched a documentary about uh, about George W. Bush and 
he was, and my wife said, oh no, you're going to start liking him now. Because he was he, funny? Yeah, he really was Although, funny. With him, there's the question of to what extent <laughs> it's intentional. You yeah. know, the French have no word for entrepreneur. Yeah. I mean, come on, <laughs> who, is who one gets of, the credit that for that is line? A, that is one of the great dags, isn't it? <laughs> it's yeah. incredible. You know, so, uh, yeah. <laughs> and he, and he, had a, he just had a funny face, too. Yeah. You know, yeah. he's just... So I'm not sure if, if he right. if that qualifies, but yeah, yeah. yeah, I'll forgive almost anything with a sense of humor, and I find it impossible to really relate to people who don't, no matter how interesting they are. Oh, if they you. can't laugh, oh, I, I just can't I, find them. God, I feel like you know I'd be very happy if my books could come with a thing on the front saying. Don't bother reading this if you haven't got a sense of humor. Right. And then I feel I'd like to take that to a nut, nut next stage and actually have a thing on my forehead saying, don't speak to me if you haven't got a sense of humor. And then my <laughs> wife points out, you actually have got a thing on your forehead because it's, it's so obvious. It sort of is. But yeah, also the laugh lines. Yeah, and I, I, I sort of, then with the, you know, and it's funny, there, there, is the, there are these humorless people in the world and you wonder, what, what must the world be like for them? And you realize, it's probably rather like Los Angeles in that in London, you know, people have a great sense of humor in. Yeah, that's in, in my favorite England, thing about you know, British yeah, culture. It's like they do in New York too, yeah. and you know, you really can't survive without it in yeah. in England. You just couldn't. Whereas here, it seems to me, you really, uh, in terms of the things you need evolutionarily to survive here. It's not essential because, you know, food's great, you know, the mm. weather's great, all this kind of stuff. Uh, mm. So it's not, uh, it's not absolutely in the interests of the species to have a sense of humor here in the way that it is in, in England, which is not to say that there point. are not funny people here, but yeah. uh, it really is, it's, it's sort of, we've, it's, uh, it's striking the way that you, you can meet people here who really just sort of don't even know what a joke is unless it comes with some sort of caption saying we are now entering into the realm of the funny or right. the humorous. You go to hear a jazz quartet and somebody plays a, a great solo and the response from the other guys in the band is not to go bravo, it's just to, you know, often just to break up laughing. Yeah. Um, and just as a, yeah, that yeah. seems very uh, yeah. natural. It's very spontaneous and yeah. honest. Yeah, yeah. And, and the, you know, the, the great conundrum of being a human being is the hopelessness of our situation, right? And that's pretty much all our intelligence is good for, is pointing out how, that we're gonna die. Do you know, uh, are you a fan of the Romanian nutcase Choran? E.M. Chioran. No, I don't know. He wrote that cheery book, The Trouble with Being Born, <laughs> uh, which I find very, it, it's full of, yeah, it's full of, it's aphorisms, I, uh, they're all, every, they're all gags, really, all uh, jokes. One of the books has, uh, I think it's called The Temptation to Exist, and it has an introduction, a very well-meaning introduction by Susan Sontag, who just doesn't get Chioran, because she can't see that it's all a joke at some level. Uh, right, you know, a right. very, very, you know, very, 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 very dark joke, as that title suggests. Well, like that, that's what I'm suggesting, that there is no, there's no answer, there's no escape. The only sort of defiant gesture I can see is going over the waterfall with a joke. Uh, yeah. Thank you for hanging out. Uh, if you'd like to support the podcast and are financially 
able, go to patreon.com and search for Tangentially Speaking. You enter your credit card, tell them you want to give me a buck, five bucks, 20 bucks, 30 bucks, 50 bucks, 200 bucks, and then they'll just automatically ding your credit card and you don't have to think about it again. Uh, If you don't have uh, the money to do that, that's fine. Don't worry about it. Tell your friends about the podcast, write a review on iTunes, or just enjoy the podcast. It doesn't matter. I want to thank Basin and Range for that intro music. The song's called Bright Side of the Sun. And you can check them out at basinandrangeband.com. If you want to talk about the podcast, you can go to Reddit, where there are a few thousand people chatting about the podcast. Uh, I drop in and answer questions, post photos, uh, whatever. Pretty cool community there. Another forum where you can meet fellow listeners to this podcast is at t eight. No, sorry, tspeaking.boardhost.com. This has been set up by a listener to enable people to um, register and uh, their different states and countries so you can find people who live near you, get together, have a beer, smoke a bowl, eat some mushrooms, dance under the moonlight, however you celebrate these things. You'll find uh, like-minded spirits on that. It's Again, it's tspeaking.boardhost.com. Com. And uh, if you want to get some T-shirts, we have the Civilized to Death shirts, Sex at Dawn shirts, Tangentially Speaking shirts. They're all in my mom's garage. She will get them out to you in a jiffy. Julie, my mom, is one of the most efficient people you will ever meet. So you can find those on my website. That Chris Ryan, ChrisRyanPhD.com, TangentiallySpeaking.com, whatever. You'll find them. Just look in the store there. If you want to buy some other T-shirts from the same manufacturer, that Shore Design T-shirt, shirts they are fantastic i know i say this is an ad free podcast uh and this could be construed as an ad but sure design t-shirts have been supporting this podcast since its inception bennett who was the dude there decided he was going to support the podcast he sent me a bunch of shirts uh at an extreme discount to uh, help us out since bennett died the people who took over sure design t-shirts.com uh have decided to continue giving us the same deal that bennett gave us So be sure to use the discount code CTD, as in civilized to death, when you order anything from them and you'll get 20%, 20% off your entire order. That's the discount code CTD. And that's at SureDesignTshirts.com. Thank you to Carsey Blanton for the song you're about to hear. You can check her out at CarseyBlanton.com. She performed this little ditty, especially for us. Sounds like she was sitting in her garage. You can hear the birds chirping. The song is called Smoke Alarm, and it's a reminder to live now because you're going to die one day. This is for you guys, Bennett and Justin. Miss you. He said, baby, what's a big deal? Feel what you want to feel. Say what you want to say. You're going to die one day. For example, I could kiss you just because I want to. What's the difference if you turn away? I'm going to die one day. Why do you waste your time thinking about your reputation? Trying to meet an expectation, wondering what they're gonna say. When everyone you've ever known is headed for a headstone. 
doesn't ask for much A little music and a soft touch Why don't you let it out to play Your heart is in a birdcage Singing in your chest You wanna shut it up but give it a rest You're gonna die one day Why do we waste our time Thinking about a reputation to the ground. 